Okay, uh, as we get started here, this is a uh, additional recording here, uh, as it turns out, when we were actually in class. Uh, somehow I managed to turn off the recording at about nine minutes. And, and so, so much of what we said and did today is so foundational to what we're going to be talking about the rest of the semester. I wanted to take uh, a few minutes uh, and, and re-record this a little bit so you are getting the, the special version. Um, hopefully it's somewhere close to what we did in class uh, today. I'm recording this uh, later uh, this evening. And uh, we're going to actually start uh, with the uh, road to Damascus. Now, I, but I'm going to start out of... Uh, out of uh, uh, context a little bit here because uh, we're going to begin with Acts 11. So if you want to grab Acts 11 and we're going to look ahead over to uh, verse 19. Uh, and here we have, um, as, it's, as it says there, then those who had been scattered because of the persecution that happened over Stephen, went off as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So with the, with the stoning of Stephen and the persecution, what begins to happen is that the, the, uh, the members of the way, uh, the followers are, are trying to find safety and they're scattering all over the place. Uh, in this case, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and as we'll find out in a second, also Damascus. Uh, now, as they did, they were speaking the word to no one but Jews. But now we get an interesting thing that starts to happen. Uh, it says, but there were some men from Cyprus and Cyrene among them who came to Antioch and began to speak to the Hellenists, to the Greeks, proclaiming the good news of Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a different matter altogether, because now where, where the, the good news has been being preached just to the Jews, uh, now we get this, this wave of, of the Hellenists starting to, to come in. And, and so it says in 22, news about them came to the attention of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So here are these educated people. They're now accepting the gospel. Now what do we do? Um, and it says, when, when he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced. He called on them to remain faithful to the Lord with devoted hearts. And then it says this, and I thought this was kind of nice. The, the writers of Luke and Acts are going to make a point to say, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a multitude gathered to the Lord. Uh, let's put that differently. Barnabas was a good man, though not very well educated, obviously, in being able to handle things with the Greeks. He, but he was a good man, uh, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and way in over his head. Um, so as then he says, as the multitude gathered to the Lord, then he goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. Uh, I need somebody who knows what they're doing when we start dealing with the Gentiles and I know a guy and and this is Saul um, now and then he says he found him and brought him to Antioch and then for an entire year they they teach so 
I want to I want to kind of come back here. Why Saul? Well, see, the problem in taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the first century Gentiles is you got to have the right guy. Um, and so here's a resume. Uh, if somebody's going to be preaching in first century uh, the Greek world and among the Gentiles, but also be able to teach and mix well with the Jews uh, that are joining the way, the church. So here's the resume. We need someone who, first of all, has a deep working knowledge of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Paul seems to have been one of those people that, as N.T. Wright says, seems to have swallowed the Hebrew Bible. He, is, uh, he, he can flow easily from Isaiah to Proverbs to Genesis and back to Leviticus and then over to Daniel, and he does it seamlessly. Uh, this is in all of his growing up. Remember, he was a Pharisee. So that means that he spent all of his time uh, studying and trying to understand. He seems to have had a photographic memory. He could remember all of these things. Uh, it's like when, when you go to the uh, Wailing Wall uh, in Jerusalem and you can see the, the, the people there uh, worshiping at the, the wall, but then you go down to the, the left on the men's side and down underneath an ancient arch uh, that was there at the, at, uh, during the te Temple of Herod <clears throat> and you find Hasidic Jews in there and a library and all they're doing all day long is studying and reading and trying to understand and debating what is in the um, what was in Torah and, and that really is who Paul also was, was somebody who could do this, had done that, and understood the Hebrew Bible well. Uh, secondly, uh, is he was going to have to be someone who can speak Aramaic to the Jews fluently, because he's going to be preaching uh, to the Jews. He has to be comfortable to the Jews. So he's got to speak Aramaic to the Jews, he's got to read Hebrew, and he has to be to know and keep the law of Moses. If he's not keeping the law of Moses, uh, he's going to be—he's not going to be able to preach in synagogues. He's not going to be accepted in Jerusalem. Uh, and if you'll recall, part of the problem when Paul is um, when when he's sentenced to go to Rome, part of the what they were saying about him was that he'd come into the temple and that he was subverting uh, the Law of Moses and trying to bring in people who weren't keeping the Law of Moses. So whoever this is that's going to preach to the Gentiles, they've got to be keeping uh, the Law of Moses. Uh, now, on top of that, though, they also have to know their Greek and Roman history, culture, and philosophy and be a Roman citizen. Uh, you can see the Apostle Paul at uh, the Aragopolis, the at Mars Hill, and he and he easily flows from teaching them about Christ to going into Greek philosophy, and he does that seamlessly. Uh, so he understands where they're coming from. Uh, so here's somebody he has to know Hebrew and the Law of Moses, but he's also going to know Greek and Roman history and culture and mythology. Uh, and be a Roman citizen so that he's protected uh, from some of the pushback that he might get. What else would be on this man's resume? Well, he has to have a tireless drive and zeal and love. I love how uh, N.T. Wright 
sometimes describes Paul as a busy little man, that he is busy and he never stops moving and he is driven by a zeal and by a love uh, to be able to go out and preach and constantly be there uh, and make things move and happen. now, on top of that, he may know these things, but the question is he also has to have some powerful debate skills. And he's got to be able to debate both in Aramaic in the temple and Greek in the marketplaces of Ephesus and Corinth. Uh, he's got to be able to think quickly on his feet and be able to talk and convince. And here's this, here's this uh, great debater Uh, with all of this knowledge and all of this understanding, and he has all of these powerful debate skills. Uh, Finally, whoever is going to be tasked with moving Christianity into the Gentile world is going to have to have a pretty stout constitution. He's going to get beaten at least five times. He's going to be stoned and left for dead. Uh, he's going to be go through constant hardship and shipwrecks. Th- this is a guy who's going to go through a lot, and physically he has to be up to the task. Uh, that's a, if you look at all of these, this is a tall order that somebody is going to have all of these abilities, and you're going to find it in one person. And that's why Barnabas, when he gets to Antioch and he sees that the Gentiles are coming. I think Barnabas is probably good for one sermon or a handful of sermons, but to go in the long run and to be able to preach on and on for a year and work closely with these Gentiles, he recognized the only person he could think of that might be able to do that would have been Saul. Uh, this is Saul had spent all of his life studying if he had brought in someone like Peter, uh, or Andrew, they were fishermen. They had not spent all, the, all of their life studying. They were administrating the church. They, were, uh, they had a testimony of Jesus. They were personal testimonies of Jesus, but they did not have this background that would give them the strength uh, to be able to do all the things that was going to be required uh, to do. So, as we roll, as we, uh, roll forward then, uh, let's now go backwards. And we'll take a look at uh, the infamous moment. Uh, If we go to Acts 9, um, who was Saul? Where did he come from? Well, we saw him at the uh, stoning of Stephen, uh, but now he's going to, it says in uh, Acts 9, that Saul was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to go to the Damascus synagogues so that if he found any who were of the way, the church, men or women, he would bring them to Jerusalem as prisoners. Uh, These people were a threat to Judaism and to Israel and any time that you're going to allow this kind of subversiveness in the middle of Israel, you're going to put yourself open to being attacked by uh, Assyrians and Babylonians and Romans because of your wickedness. Cities go away if you allow this kind of uh, hijinks to be going on in your midst. So while he went, he drew near to Damascus and a light from heaven suddenly shone around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, why are you persecuting 
me. And he replied, Who are you, Lord? And he answers, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. I don't think we can begin to uh, understand the shock and the surprise this would be. Um, and, and so ultimately, it, he is so much in shock, but he's told to go into the city. Uh, you'll be told what to do. Uh, the men that are traveling with him are speechless. They're listening to the voice, but they're not seeing anything. Um, there are other versions of this, by the way, in the New Testament, uh, describing the same moment that says they did hear things. Um, but it says they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus and he spent three days without seeing and he did not eat or drink. Now, does this sound familiar? We heard this story before. Well, certainly. This is, this is Alma in the Book of Mormon who has this same kind of conversion experience. Um, now, is this... I think we have to ask ourselves, is this... Uh, the pattern for the Lord uh, is this uh, Joseph Smith borrowing from the story of Paul and putting this in um, the Book of Mormon uh, no it seems to have happened uh, but it, isn't it interesting that these stories are there and they're so very much similar okay so now I think we kind of know what happens next uh, that he's going to then be, uh, they're going to take him to Anias, who's going to then says, well, I'm not sure I want to do this, Lord. The Lord directs him to go ahead and and uh, heal Saul. He, he does so. Uh, and then almost immediately, Paul begins to try and preach in the synagogues around Damascus, which would have been a tremendous shock to everybody. Uh, that he would do such a thing. Now, he says by his own writings, if you, if you hop over to Galatians 1, here's what he says. In his own words, he describes this. He says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I violently persecuted the church and tried to destroy it. Almost the same language of the Book of Mormon. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my peers among my, my nation. Uh, remember, he says later in Galatians, he says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You know, I was, in other words, I'm the Pharisee of the Pharisees. I am, I was more zealous than anybody else. Being extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Um, now, side note, uh, this word extremely zealous has a specific meaning. If you look in Paul's other writings, there are two other people that he describes as being extremely zealous for the traditions. Uh, one is Elijah, and the other is a man by the name of Phinehas. Uh, Phinehas uh, fought against those that would try to subvert uh, Joshua at the time they were coming into the Promised Land, and he Phinehas went out at night and drove a javelin through traitors' hearts. Uh, Elijah, of course, kills the priests of Baal. What he's saying is being extremely zealous for the word means violence is okay uh, if you're trying to defend. Uh, that was part of that whole idea, even in the stoning of Stephen. 
being extremely zealous means violence uh, and that's okay to go ahead and do that uh, we don't necessarily believe that um, I don't know unless it's Nephi cutting off the head of Laban but um, this extremely zealous means yeah I was pretty violent for the traditions of my ancestors but when God who set me apart from the womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me as a specific phrasing that we'll talk about it at another time pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles and then he says I did not confer with flesh and blood I wasn't taught by flesh and blood I was taught by the Spirit uh, and and what he's going to say there is nor did I travel to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me but I traveled to Arabia and then again returned to Damascus he will not go to Jerusalem he doesn't meet uh, Peter for for three years after his conversion uh, he learns what he needs to learn uh, then he is he is filled with the spirit um, and then it says that he traveled to Arabia now that's that's pretty fascinating uh, this this mission that Paul undertakes uh, to Arabia is a source of great um, um, conjecture among New Testament scholars. Where in Arabia did he go? What was he doing in Arabia? Um, now, there, there are a number of possibilities. Uh, let me give you just two. Uh, first of all, Thomas Wayment, uh, in, in his book uh, about Paul, uh, From Persecutor to Prophet, Tom Wayman says this. He believes that Paul goes to Petra in Jordan, to the to the the uh, capital city of the Nabataeans, there on the other side of the River Jordan, uh, to try and preach his his new message. Uh, but he's stopped by the king who was preparing to go to war with Herod Antipas. Um, now let's let's stop for a second. Why would <laughs> why would the king of the Nabataeans be preparing to go to war against Herod Antipas, who is a procurator um, in, in Galilee. Well, the first time we're running across Herod Antipas, remember, is that Herod's, Herod Antipas is the one who is going to have John the Baptist beheaded. John the Baptist is beheaded because he was complaining that Herod had taken another wife. That wife was Herodias, and she happened to be, you remember, the wife of his brother, Philip. Uh, and, and when she complains, then he's beheaded at the feast. You've got to remember, though, that Herod Antipas' first wife that he, he dumps when he, when he brings in Herodias. The first wife is the Nabataean princess. She is the daughter of the king uh, of the Nabataeans. They're from Petra. Um, and so his daughter has been besmirched. And, and so uh, the, the king will, be, will prepare to go to war and ultimately will. He will be defeated. 
uh, by Herod Antipas. Um, but uh, Paul arrives right in the middle of all of that war, all those war preparations. Um, so if Paul did indeed go to Jordan, to Petra, uh, he, he arrived at a really bad time. Uh, and in the process of that, not a whole lot is known about any kind of success that happened there. Uh, now, but that is, that is Tom Wayman's view of the trip to Arabia. N.T. Wright, on the other hand, believes that Arabia means that uh, Paul went all the way down to Mount Sinai, where the law was originally given, and that he has a kind of a wilderness experience of being taught by the Spirit and, and uh, being prepared uh, to go forward, and that to do that, he was going to go to uh, the south of the Arabian Peninsula down to Mount Sinai. In, in some ways, you kind of think of Paul as, um, and I've sometimes thought this, that, uh, picture for a second uh, like a, a large, uh, well-armed, well-stocked um, aircraft carrier that is making its way to attack uh, America. And, and somewhere just before it's about to attack, uh, the captain of this uh, large, well-armed aircraft carrier realizes that America is not the enemy. It's actually needs to be protected. And suddenly in, he then has to turn the ship around and attack those who would attack America. It would take a little time to turn the aircraft carrier around. It's like trying to turn around a large cruise, uh, cruise ship that just moves slowly. And so here is Paul. He's, he's got to turn the ship around and point it in another direction. Uh, he's got all of the armaments. He knows what he's doing and everything. It just has to be pointed in another direction. So somewhere in Arabia, and then he comes back to Damascus. Uh, and then after three years, he will then go down to Jerusalem. Now, so here's, here's a question to be uh, kind of pondering then as we take a look at this. And the question would be, did Paul convert to Christianity? Would Paul have seen what he did as a conversion? And a conversion, obviously, is going from one set of beliefs uh, to another set of beliefs, like one will convert from one religion to another. Would Paul have felt like he was converting from Judaism over to Christianity? Uh, now, the answer is, uh, as you can probably guess, uh, Paul would tell you that he did not convert there was no conversion here. Um, in fact, it would, and the reason why is is how he would look at uh, the the Judaism that he practiced and what Israel and who Israel was. Uh, he was taught and believed and grew up with the idea that uh, obeying the law of Moses would ultimately help Israel reclaim all the promises made. To Abraham, um, because um, this story of Israel doesn't—it actually begins in the Garden of Eden. That as soon as as uh, Adam and Eve 
commit an act that separates from them from God, they're exiled out of the garden. And that the whole Israel project, if you will, from beginning to end is the journey back to Eden. And, and so what's happening here, the law of Moses was one of those ways to the Israelites were going to reclaim all the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so keeping the law of Moses would help, would help Israel. Now, in some way, though, what they were still trying to do was that they were hoping that God's glory would return. See, the problem at the moment was, in Israel, is that they were, um, even though they had a temple, it was built by Herod, but we can overlook that. Uh, they were there, here was a temple, they were doing the acts of the law of Moses, but the Holy of Holies was empty. There was no Ark of the Covenant. Worse than that, there was no Shekinah. The glory of God that had rested on the temple during the time of Solomon and, and in the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, the Shekinah, the glory, the power of God had not returned yet. And more than that, they were still servants to a pagan king. They, they were still, even though they were living in Israel, they were still in exile. They were still in exile from God. Uh, they had not yet returned. God had not yet returned to them. Um, and so they waited for that day when all of those things would be restored and, on top, and they would know because there would be a, another King David who would then throw off all of the pagan kings and uh, and then the, they would be able to be com completely returned. Now, here's the problem though. Abraham's promise included posterity, land, but then this curious promise and that is that through Israel and the promises of Abraham, all the world would be blessed. Now, Paul would say that they had no idea how that would work. How do you do that? How does that work? That uh, we're going to throw off our pagan overlords, but somehow we're going to bless the rest of the world. That Israel would be a blessing. Didn't know. Couldn't figure that out. It made no sense. They just have to wait and figure out how that worked. Um, now, what happened though is that in, in part of the Damascus Road experience and in his time conversing with Ananias and the Spirit and ultimately with Peter and others, he comes to realize that God would bless Israel and the entire world not through the coming of a, of a earthly king and through armed conflict but that the entire world would be blessed and healed and saved 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had already become the king of heaven on earth and had already saved mankind. The king had come. Rome was still in place. An emperor still sat on the throne in Rome, but Jesus was king of the world and that he had already come and, and saved uh, mankind from their sins. And in that way, Israel and this, this Messiah coming out of the blood of Israel was going to save ultimately the, the world. So everything that he understood about the law of Moses, about the promises of Abraham, now suddenly made sense. The final peace was placed and all at once the whole Israel project now made sense because it now worked and, it, and now and that was the part he could take everything that he knew and loved about Israel and Torah and and be able to proclaim the good news to the Gentiles that they too had also been that their sins had been uh, taken care of and that that there had been a king that had come that had saved uh, them as well as as those of Israel so ultimately then for Paul God's glory from Eden through Abraham to Jesus had been the only story and the true plan all along his job now was to preach um, and to share that message uh, in all the world and have them understand. And now suddenly uh, Leviticus made sense and, and the Psalms made sense and Isaiah and what Isaiah was saying made sense. It all fit and it all had its culmination, its climax in Jesus. Uh, now that was a message that he could gladly take forward and he didn't he didn't give up his Jewishness to do it. He, he was able to talk about the completion of the law of Moses um, and be able to, to move forward. Now, the other part that goes with this, I want to take a step back for just a second. Because in a sense we're looking at a man that is going through a repentance process. Um, and, and yet we have to take a look at how Paul viewed repentance, how the, the, first, uh, the, the church fathers in the first couple of centuries, how they viewed it, uh, because then it will explain why Paul was doing some of the things that he was doing. Um, and it depends on how we take a look at repentance itself. So if you picture for just a second, like two columns, um, Let's give uh, one, one view of repentance, which I have called the criminal justice model. And as we, we've talked about previously, this is the one where we see sin uh, uh, as the breaking of laws. And when a law is broken, <sighs> penance is required. Under the criminal justice model, you have to be, somebody has to pay uh, for a broken law. So, because sin is a criminal act uh, and it cannot stand. Justice requires uh, that, this, that this be put down. Now, 
In order to do that, part of the penance of this is that there are required steps that must be taken to gain forgiveness. And forgiveness can't happen until after you've taken those steps. Um, now, traditionally, we've, we've kind of, in the church, we've kind of done some of that because I remember growing up and I was always taught the seven R's of repentance. I have no idea. I can't remember all of them as what they were, but they included things like uh, remorse and restitution and all that. And you had to walk through all of these steps in order to gain forgiveness because that's what repentance was. Repentance was doing these steps. And if you hadn't, if you weren't doing these steps, you hadn't fully repented. Uh, and if you hadn't fully repented, you weren't going to be, uh, you weren't able to gain forgiveness. Uh, you were still basically a sinner. Now, part of this, though, is that when when we talk about the the penance, we're talking about the fact that we need to we need to pay. There needs to be there needs to be some real anguish here, and and godly sorrow is not just a remorse. It is godly sorrow that we hurt enough that we won't do it again. <laughs> the idea of penance uh, is that there's a deterrent factor here, and if you hurt enough. And if, this, and if the uh, penalty is bad enough, then part of repentance is you are scared by the possible pain of ever repeating again that sin. So within that criminal justice model then, you or a benefactor uh, may, can step in and pay for that uh, broken law. This is, uh, in Christian circles, this has been called the penal substitution theory, where he's going to come in and pay uh, the, the price, pay the cost, pay the penance, so that you can repentance. You can then repent um, to, to get paid for that. And if all of that happens, then after enough time and pain and restitution, then forgiveness is granted. That is not how Paul would have seen it. Instead, let's take a look at, at the, the other model, which comes, I think, much closer. And that is the reconciliation model. Uh, remember that we, we talked about the fact that um, William Tinsdale, as he's translating the Bible, that he comes across a word and he doesn't necessarily like the word it doesn't completely fit with how they were seeing the the church at the time um, and instead of putting and and so he creates the word atonement at onement um, and the word that he's replacing again is reconciliation because in this idea of reconciling you're talking about something that I think is best seen in uh, and certainly demonstrated by the Savior in the parable of the prodigal son. And, and it's that moment when the father is standing and waiting and looking out into the village uh, and he sees the son returning in the distance. Now, let me, let me ask, as, you're, as, as you think about this, what would you do if you're the father? 
here comes the son. He sold off a third of your land. Uh, it's been a hardship on the family. Uh, he's been off spending his the, that livelihood among the Gentiles. Under the criminal justice model, what should the father do? Well, wouldn't, wouldn't the father uh, require some kind of restitution first before the forgiveness comes? Maybe you don't know. He might do it again, so you can't trust him too fast. You've got to, you got. There's got to be some pain. There's got to be some heartache. Um, you know, certainly the older brother is thinking this. Um, and instead, what happens? What happens is not a criminal justice experience. What happens is a loving, powerful, transforming reconciliation. The father comes out, it says. He comes out, he runs. Uh, he runs. He meets the son, and as he throws his arms around him, the reconciliation process begins. And at that moment, um, forgiveness is immediate. He puts a ring on his finger. The, the signet ring, the, the uh the sign that he can transact business in the name of the family. He gives him the robe. All of that is happening immediately. Um, Jesus was trying to explain that, that sin is a, is a behavior that is a self-imposed separation from God and from fellowship, and that that does produce pain, as it was for Adam and Eve. Sin was an action that resulted in a separation from God. And certainly for the, this son, it was a separation from his family and from a, a loving father. And I think he began to realize that as he's in his father's arms, who is weeping. Um, forgiveness is immediate. Uh, for this son, forgiveness was immediate. Now, that, that love, that forgiveness, then produces a, ch a transformation, a change of heart. Um, I, I think, for instance, of the the woman caught in adultery, who was brought to the to Jesus at the temple. Uh, forgiveness there is immediate; it, it is uh, complete. Now she still needs to go out. There's a transformation that it underway that goes gets underway, and that love that she felt that would then propel necessary life changes, probably any kind of restitution that needs to happen. Um, uh, certainly any ordinances like baptism would then come uh, as somebody is in the process of transforming their life. But the, trans but the actual forgiveness happens at, at that uh, reconciliation moment and it happens right at the beginning. And I think for Paul, what's happening here is that uh, as bad as, as the things that he did, where he actually beat leaders of the church, he gathered them together, he had them arrested. If you look at uh, what he's doing, that forgiveness came as fast as within that three-day period. Um, even though there was a lot of restitution that needed to be done and the restoring of trust, as soon as his eyesight is brought back, he's immediately baptized. 
and he's and he's restored and he's brought and he's brought into the kingdom um, the the forgiveness has happened and he will be and he will teach that across the civilized world wherever he goes that repentance happens fast forgiveness happens fast that God is reconciled to sinners a pretty great way to go if if you take a look at it okay all right so that said now let's look at what happened so now we can kind of go backward in time just a little bit um, and let's go to um, uh, we'll, we'll go to Acts uh, 9 and then we're going to go to verse uh, 36 uh, this is and this, it says in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha which means Dorcas um, now Joppa which is now Jaffa is uh, just barely down the coast, five miles away from what is now Tel Aviv. Uh, and apparently there was, uh, there were believers there in, in uh, Joppa. Uh, one of them is uh, Tabitha. And, and it says that she was continually doing good works. Um, and... Peter was nearby when it turns out that she gets, she becomes ill and dies. Uh, and so they send a message to him to come without delay. And so Peter arrives and comes. And then I think what happens here is that uh, look closely at the language here. Um, and watch, watch what the writers of the book of Acts are going to do with, with this. In Acts 9.40 it says, Peter sent them all outside and knelt and prayed and turned towards her body. Now, who did he send out? Well, he's actually sending out all the widows. Um, who says, all the widows that stood by Peter and weeping showed him the tunics and other articles of clothing that, that Dorcas had made while she was with them. This was a lady that, uh, you know, if this was modern day, it'd be like, here's all the quilts she made. You know, here's all the kids the baptism dresses she made. I mean, here's all the, she's made all these things and we're going to hang them up here as a memorial to this great woman that did all these things for widows, uh, for those that couldn't maybe afford to do it and she's doing all of this. They're saying she was a great woman, don't let her die. And, and but it, So Peter then sends them all outside and he knelt and prayed and he turns towards her body and says, Tabitha, arise. And she opens her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her and called the saints and widows and presented her alive. Well, interesting thing about this. We know this story, don't we? Isn't there another story just like this? Um, and there is. It's over in Mark. Uh, in Mark 5, when, when Jesus arrives uh, to get to talk to the to Jairus's daughter um, and she dies remember and he comes anyway and then the mourners derided him and it says that he threw them out and he and he took the father of the child and the mother with him and those that were with him and went in where the child was and he took the hand of the child and said to her Talitha kum which means little girl I say unto you arise now I think there's a word play here Talitha and Tabitha, and there's only one 
consonant different between the two. Uh, this is meant to have these two stories tied together. Uh, either, either because the writers of Luke wanted to put wanted to write this in such a way so that Peter is becoming Jesus and just like him. Or it's also very, very possible that Peter, in doing this, had remembered this experience with Jairus' daughter, and he was going to do it exactly how Jesus did it. You know, it's like he's got the, he's got the uh, priesthood manual that says how you perform uh, a blessing on a grave. You know, and I, I'm going to do it the way that it says in the manual. Well, I think he may have been trying to do it just like Jesus. But it's interesting in doing that, though, they tie... Simon Peter and his actions to the Savior. And so he's going to do it exactly the way. Well, it works. And, and uh, Tabitha arises, and now she's able to continue sewing things for the widows in Joppa, if you will. Okay. All right. Now, that, that movie... So if this is a movie, imagine uh, the movie goes to, to black on Joppa... But now it opens in Caesarea, uh, days up the coast. Uh, Caesarea Maritima uh, was a large, uh, was a beautiful uh, Roman uh, port that uh, Herod had built for uh, Caesar. And it says that there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius. Uh, Cornelius is a, he's a Roman, but it says that he was a devout man who together with his all his house feared God. What does that mean? That means he was a God-fearer. Who were the, who were the God-fearers? Remember, in any synagogue, you would have Jews, and then you would have proselytes, people that had joined Judaism. Maybe they weren't born Israelite, but they joined, were circumcised. And then there were the God-fearers. And the God-fearers were people like Cornelius who loved uh, the Israelite traditions, worshipped in synagogues with the Jews, but hadn't, pro- hadn't joined, hadn't proselyted to it. Probably didn't want to be circumcised um, or, or live all the food laws or something. But he's a God-fearer, okay? He's a devout man who together with his house feared God. Um, and he offers many offerings to the people and prays to God. And you remember um, that an angel comes to him. We know the story. Um, Your offerings have been accepted, the angel says to him. Now send men to Joppa and to go find Simon, who is called Peter. And he's staying with Simon, a tanner, whose house is near the sea. Um, when you go to Joppa, uh, the house... The traditional site of Simon the Tanner is indeed right by the sea, um, and you can go and you can you can see it. Uh, and the tra- it's the traditional place. And the belief is uh, that in that house, as there as these as these uh, emissaries from Cornelius are on their way to Joppa, it says about noon uh, while they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. And he was hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing, I guess he took too long, or they took too long. While they were preparing a meal, he fell into a trance. And you remember the, and we all know the story of the, the uh, sheet that comes down by four corners, and the unclean things are in there. Um, 
uh, unclean uh, animals, and he's told to uh, rise, kill, and eat. Certainly not, Lord. I haven't eaten anything that's uncommon. And then, and then the voice says, what God has cleansed, you must not call unclean. Um, I, I, I do think it's interesting. Is this, is this is a move towards taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Isn't it interesting that Paul gets an actual vision uh, with Jesus? It's going to take that to convert him. But for Peter, Peter's given something that messes with his, all of his traditions of the law of Moses. How, do you, how can you tell who the Jews are versus the Gentiles? You can tell who a Jew is back then by what he eats and where he eats and what he does before he eats and who he eats with and on what days he fasts and when he has feasts. Everything about eating food and the kind of food you're eating is all bound up in the law. And so if Peter's going to be given a direction to change everything that he believes about moving the way forward into the world of Gentiles, it's interesting that the Lord is going to do it by pushing back against all of the food laws associated with the law of Moses. And it's right about that time, remember, he's in the middle of that. Then the emissaries from Cornelius show up. They're going to take him off. Uh, to um, to see Cornelius, and then he's gonna, and then ultimately, after he baptizes the family of Cornelius, he's gonna have to go back to Jerusalem and explain to the Jerusalem Jews why it is that he was baptizing and not circumcising Gentiles. So we get all of that. Um, now that brings us all the way up then to. Um, where we went with with the church suddenly exploding in in Antioch, um, and 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 now you get all of this sudden growth there, and they they send Barnabas up there, and oh my gosh, up in Antioch, uh, they are now beginning in large measure to accept the gospel. What do we do about all of this? Well, what we're going to have to do is that we're going to have to be able to preach. And that's, and that's when suddenly this marinating that's been going on with Saul, who goes home to, to uh, Tarsus, while all of this is going on, and, and Paul is just probably in his own little house church there in Tarsus. He's probably just, you know, passing the sacrament and, you know, making tents out of the black goat hair and probably conversing with the gospel with with uh, the Greeks in the area and he's probably a pillar in that in that uh, particular branch of the the church there and in the middle of all of that here comes Barnabas who remembers meeting with him knows what what how powerful Saul can be and then brings him in to uh, to what is about what we're about to now go to uh, next week, where we start talking about the um, the first journey that that Paul and Barnabas will go when they when they go to Cyprus and they will meet with the governor uh, with the same name Paulus. Uh, don't know if Paul was a, a namesake of Paulus or something, but he certainly seems to be received well when he gets to Cyprus. Um, so, ultimately, as we, as we kind of take a look at this, and I, I will kind of wrap up with this. 
part of what we get in, in all of this is that a great, uh, one of the great Christians of all time uh, is now pressed into the work and he has been prepared as a, as a child, as a, as a devout Pharisee and his knowledge and understanding of the Hebrew Bible is unparalleled and it's going to be desperately needed as he, as he begins to establish outposts of the church in Ephesus and Corinth uh, that he will debate at Mars Hill and in Rome uh, and he will put up with beatings uh, and be imprisoned in Ephesus and, and all the things that are coming to Paul um, in his life and now it has its beginning and, and as we talked about before this is the moment that Christianity is saved because had, had Christianity and the way stayed in, in Judea then when the Great Revolt comes in 66 AD, Christianity wouldn't have survived the first century. It had to be moved into the rest of the world. Uh, Paul was the one who had to do it. And Paul was uh, prepared, uh, like he said, from the womb, prepared to do this, that Christ would live in him and that he could take Christ then to the nations. Um, and, and so we ought, ought to always be grateful for this busy little man <laughs> that with the tireless energy and, and a photographic memory of a Bible to be able to share it with, with uh, the world. Um, and I'm grateful that we're able to, to take a look at, at who he is and what he did and, and be kind of in awe of this great man. Uh, and I pray that as we take a look at that, that we will understand um, exactly what he was doing and we can begin to learn uh, uh, more about how it is that, that this first century saw this, this uh, Christ that had come among them and the things that he did. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.